and uh, I'm looking forward as he works now into some New Testament teachings. Let's uh, open in prayer. Father God, we pause amidst uh, another busy day, a glorious day that you have made to give our thanks to you, to honor you for all you've given us, for all its goodness. And what a contrast today that we would have a Transfiguration Sunday amidst a Super Bowl. What a contrast of glorious, glorious events where people and things are honored. The simple game, as any coach would tell you to pass and catch and run the football. And we glorify it with men and women planning for months. We glorify it with TVs and radios and announcers and opinions. In the humble walk that I had this morning for communion, was contrasted with players coming through, vomitures onto fields with fireworks and banners and streamers and cheering. And we, we prep for this day so much, and yet you call us to a very humble life. No preparation, but an open heart, a sensitivity to you. As we study today the word and how it was put together and created and given to us, help us be aware that we should not get caught up in the glory of religion, but in the simple message of Jesus, of Jesus on the cross, crucified and risen, and not glorify it beyond that. And we ask for your blessings as we open our mind to that, and upon our teacher today, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. How's everyone doing? Good to see you again. Today I want to talk about Logos in a completely different way than I've been talking about it. Well, in a way that I've mentioned several times, but as you know, each time I'm going through the relationship of Mythos, Logos, and Rhetoric. This time I want to look at the influence of this person. His name was Philo of Alexandria. <coughs> Sometimes called Philo the Jew. And he was a contemporary of Paul and a contemporary of Jesus. Um, born earlier, but lived at the same time as Jesus and Paul. And he lived in uh, Philo Judeus. Father the Jew. And his writing has been uh, known, it's been known for at least 100 years or so, uh, was highly influential on the New Testament. Now, that being said, 1990, Earl Doherty, uh, let me just back up. I remember when I was being educated and all of this, one of my professors said that uh, the best way to get a new book is to say something insane. 
<laughs> to just spend a whole lot of time researching something. And uh, it, because it's controversial, you'll get yourself a book, you'll get yourself a career. <laughs> and I remember him talking about that Jesus had been called a Pharisee and Jesus had been called an Essene and Jesus had been called an Egyptian and a Buddhist and all kinds of things. Somebody made a book about that. He said the only thing left is someone to say that Jesus was a zealot, which would be the absolute opposite of what it would be. It would be like saying Jesus was a terrorist, uh, although not all zealots were terrorists. They were prone to violence. And somebody, guess what, wrote a book saying Jesus was a zealot. Okay, so in 1990, Earl Doherty published a book called The Jesus Puzzle, one of two books in which he claims there was no historical Jesus, and he gives a very elaborate explanation. Now, Wikipedia noted that not a single early Christian source supports Doherty's claim that Paul and those before him thought of Jesus as a spiritual, not a human being, who was executed in the spiritual, not the earthly realm, and that's his main thesis. In a book criticizing the Christ myth theory, New Testament scholar Maurice Casey describes Doherty as perhaps the most influential, all the mythicists, his, he has videos all over YouTube. I don't know if you've ever encountered him. Um, but one who is unable to understand the ancient text he uses in his arguments. That being said, you're probably wondering, why am I even talking about this guy? You are. I'll tell you, part of it is because of some things that I'm going to tell you. Probably, uh, I think about three-fourths of what he says is confirmed elsewhere. He did what a lot of people do, which is to take a lot of theories that are floating around separately and pull them into a book. He wasn't the first, actually, to do it. So um, a lot of what he says, three-fourths of what he says, is not untrue. And it also is confirmed by other sources. And it doesn't necessarily lead to his conclusions. And as my professor William Lane observed, the most dangerous lies are the ones that are based in truth. He said, when someone is half true, it's more convincing than just a full lie. <laughs> Oh, that's William Lane. He also taught me to seek truth wherever it can be found. He used to quote that verse from Paul, whatever is true, think on these things. He also taught me to never be afraid uh, to engage critique. In other words, he said, if someone says something crazy, don't ignore them or protest them. Read it. Find out what they're saying. Look to see the degree of truth because that's what makes it confusing. He also said that truth is bigger than any of us. And he was very much like Gamaliel. Remember Gamaliel in the New Testament when there's a riot over the new Christian faith? Gamaliel is a Jewish teacher and he says, well, if this is true, no one can stop it. And if it's not, it'll go away on its own. Dr. Lane was very much that mindset. How long will this book be, that guy's book be published? Who knows? But there is some truth in it and I want to focus on that because I think he gives probably the best explanation of Philo's influence. So in any case, Doherty's description of the influence of Philo on early Christianity, if you adjust for his bias, is just about the best out there. All right, so here's what he says. And when I'm going through, I go through different sources, but I always make sure you can see that that's Doherty down there in the corner. Okay, so these are things that he says that are confirmed elsewhere. Only if the fundamental concept of a heavenly intermediary between God and humanity was already a part of the philosophical fabric of the time 
Can we understand the genesis of the Christian movement or the success which the apostles like Paul achieved? Consciously or unconsciously, Paul and his contemporaries were fitting their spiritual son to the thought patterns of the time, which very much fits with what I've been saying, that there's a mythos and that they speak within that. And I agree, they are nowhere so clear as in Alexander around the turn of the era, especially in the writings of Philo Judeus. Speaking of which, my own professor that I just mentioned, this is when I first learned about Philo, it was from him. Philo might be styled a grandfather to Christianity, for some of his genes have been passed down to Paul and others, genes he himself had drawn from his own progenitors, the world of Platonic philosophy and Jewish wisdom. All right, so even the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy notes that Philo produced a synthesis of Hebrew and Greek traditions, developing concepts for future Hellenistic interpretation of a Messianic Hebrew thought, especially by Clement of Alexandria, Christian apologist, Athen Athenagoras, Theophilus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and Origen. I've mentioned the writings of some of those people on earlier talks. He may have influenced Paul. Now, this is what they say, he may have influenced Paul. So I thought, okay, this book is saying may, the other book is saying did. So what we're going to do next is we're going to actually look at some things that Philo said and look at some passages from the New Testament. We'll see the evidence ourselves. In the process, he laid the foundations for the development of Christianity in the West and the East as we know it today. So what is the evidence? If one compares what Philo says with various New Testament books, the comparisons are too numerous and too similar to be coincidental. Follows ideas themselves, a weaving of different influences, quickly became a part of the mythos of the Greco-Judaic world. Okay, one of the places this is the most evident are Christological hymns. I also remember Dr. Lane teaching us about those. That there are passages inside of Paul's letters, and in some of the other letters, but quite a few in Paul's letters, where he is not speaking, he's quoting liturgy. Usually it's at the beginning of the chapter. You know where he'll have the salutations, greetings for Paul, blah, blah, blah. Usually what follows is uh, an early Christian hymn. And one of the things that's fascinating to us now is to see that these things that he's quoting are earlier than the Gospels. The Gospels haven't been written yet. So these are the earliest examples we have of Christian doctrine. Okay. So they would have circulated throughout the early church and reflect the earliest Christian creeds. You can tell when Paul is going into one or when a writer is going into one because there's just a, a, a structure, a unity, a poeticness to the language that's broken away from the language that's used right before or right after. Unfortunately, they didn't live in a time where you had to footnote everything, and so <laughs> they don't go. And here's a Christological hymn, which would be handy. All right, so if we look at, I'm going to look at Philo on the left. And Philo uh, was born in the, you know, uh, well before the turn of the century, and he lived until after Christ's death. We'll look at his dates a little bit later. 
Father wrote this, for the father of things that are, that are hath made him of things that are, hath made him rise as his eldest son. From elsewhere he hath called his firstborn. And who, for, and who, when he hath been begotten, initiating the ways of his sire, and contemplating his archetypal patterns, fashions the species of things. Who is this son that he's talking about? It's the divine Logos. But the reason, Logos, is God's likeness, by whom reason the whole cosmos is fashioned. So he's taking these ideas from two Greek sources that we'll look at later, Stoicism and Platonism, and pulling them together. Now, one thing that's important to realize about Philo is he's considered a philosopher, but he was a mystical philosopher. So his writings are based in texts, and he quotes constantly from the Old Testament, from Plato. He quotes constantly, and he's wildly read. But at the same time, these are everything he says are based in kind of mystical visions and experiences that he has. All right, Colossians. The Son is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, exactly mirroring the language. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And we'll see that is very close to follow in some other places as well. So this is what Doherty says. The Christological hymn in Colossians is stamped with the same kind of imagery as well. The sun is the pre-existing image of God, a force which created the universe and now holds it together. Paul himself tells us that Christ is the very image of God in 2 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, he has this to say. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all being comes. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come to be, and we through him. So Doherty says, Paul and the other early writers are speaking of Christ in exactly the same language as we find in the broader philosophical world, both Greek and Jewish, which of course continues the theme I've been talking about, that they speak the language of their day and the images and ideas of their day. Their idea of the spiritual son has absorbed both the features and roles of the Logos personified wisdom. If you're interested in that personified wisdom part, that's next week. Paul is drawing on prominent ideas of his day and the deeper heritage which lay behind them. So, here's another Christological hymn compared to something Philo said. Now the most ancient reason, Logos, of that which is, is vested with the cosmos as his robe. For he wrappeth himself in earth and water and air and fire, and what comes from them, the partial soul, doth clothe itself in a body as the wise man's mind and virtues. And he shall not take the mitre from his head, he shall not lay aside his royal diadem, the symbol of his admirable rule, which, however, is not of an autocrat or emperor, but of a viceroy. Nor will he rend his garments, for the reason, Logos, that which is, being bond of all things, hath been said, holds together all parts and binds them, and does not suffer them to be dissolved or separated. Now, he uses the idea of the Logos becoming flesh in a completely different way, and we'll see there are big differences in what he says and what the New Testament does. Yes? What do you mean by the partial soul? Uh, 
Yes, it is. I wish I knew a better answer to that question. Because okay. you got me. It, you could easily get me with Philo because he speaks in mystical language. Sometimes I'm not sure anybody knows what he means by that. Um, I'll try to find out. But what I wanted to see is that what he's saying is that the Logos takes on a body, but the body is the earth itself. The body is creation. And there are ways that that's used in the New Testament, that Jesus is the sustainer of creation. But there is no idea for him of becoming an earthly into a, a, a human being. Now, Philippians is a very old hymn, and we can see the language is a little looser in Philippians. Who being in very nature God, this is talking about Christ, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names. So we see a difference with the idea that the, that the Logos becomes embodied in the world is very much a part of both theologies. And of course you can already see what's missing in this discussion, the idea of the sacrifice. Something else that Philo said. Moreover, God as shepherd and king leads and rules with law and justice the nature of heaven, the periods of the sun and the moon, the changes, harmonious progressions of the other stars, disputing for, for the task his own right reason, Logos. His first deputing, I'm sorry, disputing is not the right word, deputing his own right reason, Logos, his firstborn son, to take charge of the sacred flock as though he were the king's viceroy. Jesus himself says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. Now, of course, this image is also in the Old Testament, but the pulling together of firstborn son and the idea of the shepherd, Philo seems to have laid that out. Philo also said that the Logos is the high priest. Because he's reading the Old Testament allegorically. He's saying, what is the meaning behind this text? And so he sees the meaning behind this text pulled together in such a way that what he said was that he thought that Moses was the great, greatest philosopher of all time. And that actually Plato and Socrates and Aristotle were stealing some of Moses' ideas. <laughs> so he saw the Jewish faith as being the pinnacle of philosophy as well as theology is the pinnacle of everything. He's not the first or the last to do that. I, I know you're probably familiar with history that St. Augustine tries to do the same thing. He tries to unify the Greek world with the Christian world. Um, St. Aquinas does that as well and they become, their, their theology has become the basis of the Roman Catholic Church and it continues up into Dante who tries to take the Greek Roman and Christian worlds, put them all into the Dante's Inferno. So people have been doing this all along, all the way up to even uh, C.S. Lewis. All right. In Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews is the closest to follow that we have in so many ways. We say we have the high priest is not a man, but the divine reason is no part, who has no part or lot in any transgressions. And here we almost have exactly the same 
words in the Greek. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So the texts are very, very close. What I'm, I guess I'm trying to say is, I think Philo created this understanding of the Logos, that the church, when it was trying to figure out what the church is, just immediately saw as relevant. It fit together. Yeah. Philo was older. He was there before the New Testament was written. He was there before Paul wrote any letters. Yeah, he published a crazy amount of books. And I'll get to that in a second. Right now, I'm just showing you the evidence. In a minute, I'll show you the history, and you'll see that. Yeah, his writing comes before. If it were the other way around, you would expect him to address the idea of Jesus, but he doesn't. You know what I'm saying? And we also know historically exactly when he lived. Okay. He was a wealthy man. And if you were wealthy in the ancient world, and he was also well-connected, we'll get to that in a minute, (laughs) then they make a statue of you. You know, then you get a bust. If I could find a bust of somebody, they were wealthy and powerful. You know what I'm saying? Because the ordinary people, they didn't make busts of these people. All right. So even in his day, though, his reputation was renowned. And you'll see why. And the epistle to the Hebrews defines the nature of the sun as the effulgence of God's splendor, the image of God's sustainer of the universe. This document comes either from Alexander or from some Palestinian circle with close connections to the Egyptian city. It's philosophy. Okay, we also know that Matthew and Luke and many of the letters were written in the, um, the Syrian, uh, under the influence of the Syrian church when the church moved to what is now Syria. I can't help but think about the history that's going on now and that the early church, to survive, moved to Syria. It was a safer place. (laughs) Jerusalem was destroyed, and the church moved to Antioch in Syria. So one of the earliest versions of the New Testament that we'll look at is the Syriac version that's written in the Syrian language. Okay, so the biggest influences, though, in terms of the culture of the people are coming either from Antioch down or from Alexandria up. And guess who lives in Alexandria? Philo. All right. Another thing that Philo said is the Logos is the divine mediator. And I've, a couple of passages have already said this. And on his angel ruling and most ancient reason, so he rules the angels as well, which Hebrews also says, the Father who created all has bestowed a special gift Standing between them as boundary, he may distinguish creature from creator. He, reason, ever is himself the suppliant unto the incorruptible on the immortal kind's behalf of distress, and is the king's ambassador to subject nature. Timothy, also in a Christological hymn, who desires all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, you could see that little Christological statement. For there is one God. One mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, gave himself as a ransom for all and the testimony given at the proper time. Philo also said that the Logos imparts God's peace. Now to him, the Logos is this mystical, spiritual figure 
not just pure metaphor, but actually a mediator. And he see, so he sees reason as sort of personified, but also it's closer to a real person than it is not. Okay, to him who hath created him, for pledge that the creator never will remove itself entirely from him, nor make revolt, choosing disorder and order's place. And to, okay, see what I mean about his language? Sometimes I don't know what the heck he's trying to say. And to the thing created for the good hope that God the merciful will never disregard the work of his own hands. Okay, fine, let's get to the point. For I will herald forth the news of peace to the creation from him who knows how to make wars cease. This is the Logos speaking himself according to Philo's version. And then we find Jesus using very similar language in John 14. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now John is the book that begins with, in the beginning was the word, which in Greek is halagas. In the beginning was halagas. So it exactly fits, and it's the one gospel that fits exactly with what Philo was saying. All right. Another thing we find in the Christological hymns. The universe is made through the Logos, and the Logos brings us back into unity with God. Now, if you think about what he means, is that reason is the highest faculty that we have. It brings us back to God. It is by means of the same reason, Logos, that he hath made the universe, and bringeth back the perfect man from earthly things unto himself again. What he means by this is something we'll get to in just a second. He's saying that if I live like the Logos, then I am a son of God too. And we'll see that the New Testament picks up on that idea as well. What he means by the perfect man is that if I'm the perfect receptacle for the word, for reason, I will be brought back to God. Hebrews says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times of very ways, but in the last days he spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation, the image of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see everything Philo said right there in those lines. And he had provided purification for sins. He sat down in the right of majesty of heaven. All right, so now I'd like to look at the, the history. I definitely think uh, this shows, because these are passages that Doherty doesn't even mention. I just look for those. I look for places in Philo's writings, and I looked, I immediately thought of passages in the New Testament, I looked, there were relationships. So these, a lot of these were put together just by me. All right, if we look at the history, how in the heck could this have even happened? The city of Alexandria in Egypt was founded in the year 331 by Alexander the Great, who always named at least one city Alexandria. Such a humble guy. <laughs> so there are Alexanders all over the place. All right. It was the largest Jewish community in the diaspora. So Jews had spread all the way across the Mediterranean coast, and the largest group of them were in Alexandria. It was the most prominent center of Jewish learning outside Palestine. So he wasn't alone. He was amongst many Jewish thinkers. It's the place where the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. So Jerusalem really is, was rapidly becoming not the center of the Jewish universe. And by the time it was destroyed, it's a good thing because then the Jews survived in these other places. Another Jewish center was Rome. 
the most important port of entry for Greek philosophy and its absorption by the Jews, because it's a very Greek city. Okay, so how did ideas travel? Didia was directly in the path of commerce and travel from Alexander to Antioch at Syria. And then Antioch, of course, leads to Asia Minor. Antioch was called the cradle of Christianity as a result of its longevity and its pivotal role it played in the emergence of Hellenistic Judaism and early Christianity. There's Antioch. The Christian New Testament asserts that the name Christian first emerged in Antioch. I remember, again, Dr. Lane talking about how it was an insult. They meant, he thinks he's a little Christ. Christiani. <laughs> it was dismissive. You're a Christiani. But the Christians were like, I do think I'm a little Christ. <laughs> and they liked it. So the name stuck. All right, so if you look up here, you can see here, up here are all the places, the churches that, that Paul would found. Derby, Lystra, Ephesus. Yeah, he ends up in Athens. Okay, so the journeys of Paul. There's Paul's birthplace. How close is it to here? Very close. There were a lot of travel between these two places. Antioch, and then down here, Alexandria. Antioch was founded also um, by the Greeks. It was founded by the Athenians as, as an outpost, as a colony. And one of the things that uh, the Athenians were wise to do in Antioch, th and this was just insane, they made Jews citizens from the very founding of the city. So Jews are not really citizens in their own country, which is being oppressed by <laughs> Alexander, etc., this is a free city. They can be a free person up there. And that's what, remember Paul brags that he's born in Tarsus. That makes him a free citizen of Rome. These, that's when these things were being established. So you can see the attraction that Alexandria and Antioch are the two centers where Jews are welcome for the most part. Later on, there is a riot in Alexandria that leads to some trouble. Like I said, so Jews were given full status as citizens. So where did Philo come from? Remember, if there's a bust made of you, <laughs> you had money. <laughs> okay. Foremost philosopher, theologian, Hellenistic Judaism, born around 25 BCE and lived to 41. So you can see. Very much a contemporary of the writers of the New Testament and Jesus himself. Philo believed that the Platonic philosophy of his day represented a true picture of God in the universe supplemented by elements of the Stoic and Pythagorean systems. But Philo was first and foremost a Jew, and so he maintained Judaism lay at the center of the picture. He didn't say Greek philosophy was the center and Judaism fits. It was more like they fit with Jewish ideas. That the Jewish scriptures as well as Jewish religious observance embodied the very reality all this pointed to. Now, there are many people who have theorized that same thing, that the philosophers were pointing to the time of the New Testament. All right. Now, this is where I think Doherty just goes a little nuts. There are some connections here that he reads like it's a Da Vinci Code novel. And I'm a little nervous about the way he reads it. But here are the facts of Philo's life. Alexandra uh, counted uh, about one million people, including the largest Jewish community outside of Palestine. Philo came from a wealthy and prominent family and appears to be a leader in his community. 
He once visited Jerusalem and the temple, and he writes about that. He wrote about everything. He wrote histories. He wrote about his travels. He wrote uh, philosophical diatribes. He resisted uh, one of the soldiers of the, of the emperor. I mean, this guy was involved in every bit. You talk about a rhetorician. He's not only writing these mystical pieces, but he's also writing to help protect the Jews. He's a pretty amazing guy. He don't, uh, his brother, Alexander, and look at his brother's name. I mean, both of them are Greek names, but good grief, his brother's name is Alexander. <laughs> Philo, of course, means, as you know, uh, philosophia, Sophia is wisdom, so Philo is lover of wisdom. It means lover or, or brother. His brother was a wealthy, prominent Roman government official. See what I'm saying? Very connected guy. A customs agent responsible for collecting dues and all goods imported into Egypt from the east. That's a big job. He donated money to plate the gates of the temple in Jerusalem with gold and silver. He also made a loan to Herod Agrippa, grandson of Herod the Great. Why is all that important? Okay, let's get to that. According to the Gospels, Jesus was put on trial before Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. So that's where we are in time. Agrippa is depicted in Acts 12 as a persecutor of the apostles. He ordered the execution of James, the brother of John, and had Peter imprisoned. To me, although the stoning of Stephen is very shocking in the book of Acts, this is the most shocking, that just all of a sudden one of the 12 was just killed. So early, you know, the church had barely begun, and he's just killed. And it's funny because it's only a few lines. You'd think they'd be like, wow, this is quite a blow. <laughs> All right, follows connection to Judea. Alexander's two sons, Marcus and Tiberius Julius Alexander, good grief, he named another one of his sons after a famous general that's going to be the emperor. Marcus married Bernice, Bernice, Latin as Veronica, the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. They are now in-laws. Nice hair. The other son, Tiberius Julius Alexander, described by Josephus as not remaining true to the ancestral practices, became procurator of the province of Judea. Is this a powerful family? This means this is basically Pilate's job later. Bernice, Bernice uh, was the daughter of Herod the Agrippa the Elder, married her first uncle. Okay, wait a second. Let's try this again. Daughter of Herod Agrippa the Elder, married her first uncle Herod, king of Chalcis after his death, king of Cilicia, deserted him, <laughs> went back to her brother Agrippa, whom she it says, might have lived incestuously, and finally she became the mistress of, guess what, Emperor Titus of Rome. She ends up moving to Rome as his mistress and has her own palace there. There's a whole different story. But you can see where conspiracy theorists would go nuts on this kind of thing. All these connections between Rome and the emperor and the Herods. <laughs> That's the way women wore them then. I, always, I just watched something on the Academy Awards last night, and, and I saw Jane Fonda with hair that stood about this high off of her head, and, and it didn't look far from that. 
And I thought, wow, that must have looked good at the time, but she looks really stupid right now. <laughs> she looked like Marie Antoinette. You remember the big hair? She's a good-looking woman. It's hard to look bad when you look like Jane Fonda, but she, that was bad. <laughs> but you can see she does have a nice face. That's just, uh, the hair is a little questionable by our standards. Okay. There was a pogrom, an, an anti-Jewish uh, um, persecution of Jews in Alexander about 38 CE. No one can figure out exactly what the Jews did but they started writing and uh, some stuff was happening. And Philo was elected to head the Jewish delegation and he went to Rome and appeared before Gaius Caligula. So, is this an important guy? Yeah. Did he have money? Yes. Were his, were his scrolls disseminated, of course. All right. So why did he write? Ancient thinking, had, uh, Doherty says, and I think rightly, Ancient thinking had arrived at the concept that the ultimate high God created and governed the universe. But as this God in the minds of philosophers became more and more transcendent, the problem arose as how he could have any contact with the inferior world of matter. So from our point of view, they needed a new mythos. They needed a new story. All right, so just a little background information. Judea was conquered by Alexander the Great in 332 and became a Greek province. Then the Romans came and it became a Roman province. Now, the, the Greeks did, I mean, the Jews did defeat the Greeks at one point in the 160s, the Maccabee Revolt. So they were independent until Rome came again. And the Herods, by the way, their claim to power is that they're descendants from the Maccabees. So the ones who revolted and protected Israel. That's where we get the, the menorah and all that. All right. So Stoicism was conceived of as imminent in the world. Okay, Stoicism had a view that God is imminent in the world, not transcendent, that God is part of the world. And the reasoning or governing principle within it, which they thought of as the mind of God, and this is called the Logos. So the Stoics believed that if you paid attention to nature, human nature, and the world of nature, that you would be in touch with God, because God created the world. In that point of view, it's kind of saying that nature is the image of God. And uh, their belief was humans possessed a spark of divine reason within themselves. I'll still hear people use that phrase, the spark of reason, the spark of divine reason. The stoic soul, so that they shared in God's nature, and they were an integral part of the cosmic world in continuity with God. You can see that doesn't fit easily with Christian belief. What fits more easily is Platonic belief. But that idea that the Logos is, holds nature together, that's what's going to attract Philo. The governing force of the universe lay into Platonism lay outside matter with the visible world only a distant, imperfect reflection of the true spiritual reality above. If you've ever read Augustine's City of God, that's exactly what he concludes later, you know, 400 years later, well, longer than that, hundreds of years later, saying that um, God, that earth is the exact image of God, but it's corrupted, it's fallen. So the heavenly city is what we should live our life for, not this earthly facsimile. Um, wait, that had implications that went beyond that, but I'm trying to figure out what the heck it was. Oh, that's kind of a literalization on earth as it is in heaven, that God is in complete control in heaven, and here there's a battle going on, and, 
And Augustine says that we should live our life for the heavenly city, the city of God. So this idea carries on all throughout the church. The Platonists too adopted the term logos, but they used it as an intermediate force which was a link between God and the lower world. So you take these two ideas that all those nature is sustained by the logos with the idea that between humanity and God is the logos. Somehow, if you can make that fit together. The first test of this force was creation. And in Platonism, they, just, they defined the logos as the image of God. So Platonists generally did not regard the logos as a personal being, but an abstract principle. So what did Philo do? He looks at all of that, and he adopted the Platonic logos for his own picture of the universe, calling the sun the first begotten of God. He also drew the figure of wisdom from Judaism's own intermediary theology, and as I said at the bottom of that, tune in next week. Philo, deeply knowledgeable in Greek philosophy, was a mystic, and he based his works on mystical revelations. All right. Philo did not personalize the first begotten of God or make him a distinct figure, because he even has an argument with himself. He calls him the, you know, God's second firstborn, but the second because it's immediately following God. He gets himself a little confused, but he definitely says there's no two people. And you'll see that struggle going on later in the Christian church when they're trying to figure out the Trinity. Are there three people? Is God three things? Is God one thing and three? There was a debate over that, and he has the same debate. Is the Logos, and somehow he just says, it just, he uses the image of the sun, and he says, the Logos are the rays. So we can't go near the sun, but we can feel the warmth and the light of the rays. It's a really interesting and beautiful analogy. And so they're not two different things. You can't say the rays are something different than the sun. Nor had he any apocalyptic leanings. He didn't have any use for any kind of messianic thing. And you'd think with all of this, he could have said, could there be a human agent? The only time he talks about that is he believed Moses was the perfect image of the Logos on earth. But he also saw the Logos as an intercessor, bringing it closer to Christianity's Christ. The power of the Logos could, however, be embodied in humans, and Philo portrayed Moses as having been the most perfect receptacle of God's Logos. And as he said, to his word, Logos, his chief messenger, highest in age and honor, the father of all has given a special prerogative to stand on the border between the two worlds and separate the creature from the creator. This same word both pleads for the immortal as suppliant and afflicted mortality and acts as ambassador of the ruler to subject. Here's another passage. And the Father who created the universe has given to his archangelic and most ancient word a preeminent gift to stand on the confines of both and separated that which has been created from the creator. And this same word is continually a supplant to the mortal God on behalf of the mortal race, which is exposed to affliction and misery, and also the ambassador sent by the rule of all to the subject race. And the word rejoices in this gift and exulting in it announces it and boasts of it, saying, and he has the word speak, and I stood in the midst between the Lord and you, neither being uncreated as God, nor yet created as you, but being in the midst between these two extremes. Okay, you probably already noticed the fellow differs 
in one key element, but in so many ways very similar. In heaven itself, Philo sees the Logos as continual supplicant to the immortal God on behalf of mortal man, as we just saw, which is paralleled almost exactly in 1 John 2.1. My dear children, I write to this to you so you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The role Philo did not assign to his Logos, however, nor to Moses, was a sacrificial one. Paul and the branch of the, and this is still Doherty speaking. Paul and the branch of the Christ movement he represented needed an atoner, a sacrifice for sin, or perhaps an earlier stage than Paul. Represented in the Philippians him, a paradigmatic suffering figure whose exaltation would guarantee the believer's own. He takes that a different direction than I would. Ultimately, Christianity became the embodiment of the suffering savior idea, and this was the greatest advance on Philo and Hellenistic philosophy in general. Philo, on the other hand, represents the Jewish optimism positive theology at its best although part of it's due to a healthy dose of Greek spirit. All right, so where are the New Testament difference? You probably noticed in every passage that I've shown you, in every hymn, the last section is what differs, right? But making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Everything before that sounds very much like Philo could have written it, but you get down here and you can see where the church went because the church is trying to say this is no mystical figure. This is no symbolic figure. This is no allegorical figure. This is a real human being. Hebrews, after he had provided purification for sins, that's the end of that hymn that Hebrews begins with. Philippians, appearance of a man obedient to death on a cross. You can see in the earliest liturgy, the idea of the sacrifice is always there united with his idea. So I do believe that the early church was very much indebted to Philo's ideas and his synthesis of the Logos. But at the same time, they had something different to deal with, which was a historical figure. And so they just saw this as a perfect unity. And you see that in the earliest hymns, this unity of the idea of the Logos, which they didn't necessarily even use the word. It does in John and other places, but not necessarily in other places. 1 Timothy 3.16 which makes me think about, you know, because John 3.16 is, everybody quotes that, kind of makes me curious. One day, or maybe I'll just do a talk on all the 3.16s. <laughs> What's that? There'll be a sign of that. That's right, there'll be somebody with rainbow hair. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, here is a remnant of another early Christian hymn. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit. See the rhythm of it? Seen of angels, preached unto Gentiles, believed in on the world, received up to glory. Bam. You can tell that's an early Christian creed and that that would have been repeated and memorized and it's being quoted by Paul here. So, this is the big gap in Doherty's theory is that from the earliest hymns, from the earliest remarks, we see them talking about a historical Jesus. All right, so what the heck did he get right? From the logos of Greek philosophy and follows Platonized Judaism to Paul's Christ Jesus is scarcely a stone's throw. I completely agree, and we've looked at evidence today. Very close. Follow described the logos as the image of God. He called it the first begotten, the primary of his emanations. If we look at Romans 8.29, for those... God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
and sisters. Through this eldest son, God produced everything else. The Logos was the instrument of God's creation. So in all of these ways, his ideas are, are mirrored in the New Testament. In some ways, I have to agree. He, he is, in a very real sense, a spiritual grandfather to the New Testament. In an idea derived from Stoicism, the Logos became the binding power which made everything in the universe cohere and function. You see in the mouth of... Uh, it is Paul, I think, in Acts 17. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. So you can see right there in the book of Acts, they're taking the ideas, the Greek ideas that other people knew, and they're putting Christianity in that language. Again, like Stoicism, the Logos was the divine seed within humans. As the Logos was God's son, all human beings were God's sons. In Galatians, Paul says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all who have baptized into Christ have been clothed, you've clothed yourselves with Christ. That idea of the word clothing in, in the world, in the flesh. But neither Paul nor Hebrews uses the extra term logos. But Paul does use image. He uses other very closely related words. But there Christ bears all the characteristics of this divine entity one step removed from the Father. This is just kind of a side note, but, and, and I, it, this may not go anywhere, but I thought this was very interesting. One of the earliest versions of the Bible is called the Syriac New Testament because, of course, the church moved to Antioch, and so the New Testament was written in Syriac. The language spoken there is the Greek word for Syrian. <coughs> and we have very, very early copies. The first mention of a Syriac New Testament is 160 to 180, I think it should be 160 to 180 AD. So some of the earliest versions of the New Testament were Syriac versions. This is what's interesting. The term Peshitta was used by Moses Bar Kepla in 903. It means simple. The, it is the oldest Syriac version which survived to the present day. So we have a Syriac version of the Bible that is from 903. That's crazy. But here's the books it doesn't include. It doesn't include John 7, and I didn't have time to look up what happened in John 7. It doesn't include the Gospel of James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 2nd and 3rd John, but it does include John and 1st John, Jude or Revelation. Those were debated books in the early church. Um, and these are the ones now scholars kind of debate the authenticity or at least the authorship being attributed to it. But what I think is more interesting is these aren't books that reflect Philo's image of God theology. Hebrews and Paul and the Gospels reflect it much more, especially the Gospel of John. So it's kind of interesting that the Syriac version didn't include that. All right, so conclusions. I think Doherty's description of the intersection of Philo's ideas is probably the most cogent one to date, but his conclusion that there was no historical Jesus is, you know, as you know, a long way from being established or you would have already heard about this guy. It's interesting to wonder how our current myth is, and so I can't help but think, why'd he come up with this theory now? You know what I'm saying? We've had all the information he had for at least 100 years. Other people wrote about it. Why now? I can't help but think, it's the time that we live in, Da Vinci Code. Let's expose the church. Let's come up with a, a crazy book. And not to say that I don't think he's genuine. I really think he's a genuine guy. I think he really believes in what he's saying. 
it doesn't mean you're right. <laughs> I've been genuine many times and wrong. <laughs> All right. So undoubtedly, the New Testament writers reflect them. What I'm saying in terms of this series is that the New Testament writers definitely are this. They reflect the mythos of their time, especially the blend of the Hebrew and Greek ideas that Philo put together. And he wasn't the only one, but he probably did it most clearly. And in this case, the link was in the Logos itself, blended from the Platonic. So mythos, Logos. And is this a testimony to Philo's rhetoric? Oh, yeah. That the guy wrote such powerful literature that it influenced a religion that he really didn't even take part in, in its formation and for all the way through its history. These ideas remain. Hold on just a second. Let me finish, and then I'll get to your question. Does anybody recognize this? In arcane halagas, kai halagas he prastantheon, kai theos he halagas. What word did you hear in there? Logos. Yeah, arcane is uh, in the beginning, right? Arcane, we say something's arcane. <laughs> we still have that word. Altus he in arcane prastantheon. Okay, so you can probably guess what that is. Gospel of John. So I just want to end with the Gospel of John, actually. In the beginning was the word, halagas. And the word, halagas, was with God, tantheon. And the word, halagas, was God. Actually, in the Greek, it says God was the word. Through him all things are made. Panta diatu egeneto. Hard to say. Let me try that again. Panta diatu egeneto. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was Zoe. It's funny, the, the woman's name, Zoe, life. In him was Zoe, and that Zoe was the force. Photo, wow. <laughs> so far, those ideas stay. And then Greek, look at the influence Greek has had on just English. The light shines in the darkness, Scotia, and the darkness has not Catalambano. Now, I think catalambano is a really interesting word, and it's how I want to end. Look at the meaning of it. Catalambano means to seize hold of, arrest, catch, capture, appropriate, overtake, perceive. What's the last one? And here Dr. Lane comes back again. He says he thinks the passage means, and the, doc and the darkness didn't get it. <laughs> it did not comprehend it. It could not see it. There you go. That's how I'd like to end. Oh, man. Question. Uh, this is the most fascinating uh, lecture I've ever heard. Uh, I never heard of Philo. But you know what? I think after looking at all this, I think God was talking through me. Well, I certainly know Philo believed that. He, he didn't believe that he was a philosopher like, a, you know, like Plato. It wasn't tossing around ideas to him. This is something he believed that he saw. And so, yeah, I... I I have no doubt. He, yeah, he was a, uh, all indications, in a very Jewish man. I mean, a very observant Jew. The evidence of them actually reading him, nobody says that. But you can't help but think that it, I, I don't believe they have to. I believe his language became a part of the way people talked about God in that whole area. And so 
they're just using that language. I don't think they know necessarily that Philo said it, although, you know, one of them could. Nobody quotes him, but that's not what they're trying to do. I mean, why would the apostles be trying to quote Philo? Am I making any sense? I just believe that his ideas became the language, just like, okay, maybe not just like, but uh, you know how Freud wrote at a certain time, and now I can just say stuff like ego and id and uh, Oedipus complex, electric complex issues, all these things that he wrote about are now the language of everyone. It's fascinating to me. In fact, I remember Dr. Lane talking about that too. He says, in 20 years, if you have a good idea, it'll be a part of the whole language of the world. And it'll just be, you know, it'll be a surprising amount of people saying stuff, even though they've never read you, or even had any, you know, slip of the tongue or a Freudian slip. I hear people say that. They've never read Freud. <laughs> so I believe it became a part of the language, the culture. No. All the, all the more reason for them to use the language of the day, just like you would or I would. Yeah. Well, that's another assumption that we make a little loosely. And we assume fishermen not educated, but that's not necessarily true. The Jews were highly literate people. We don't know. But we also know that Luke and, I mean, Mark has a very basic Greek whereas Luke has a very advanced Greek. Luke has been traditionally attributed to a Greek Jew. So Matthew attributed to a Greek Jew. So the people that put together the writings weren't, you know, the, like, let me try this again. The writers were Greek people, and so they thought in those, those ways, used that language. They were Greek Jews, but that's who they were. And, and Paul himself, he's educated as a Greek and also as a Jew. So they, the writers that we know that, that put together these books, these were not uneducated people. They couldn't have written what they wrote. It's too complicated, yeah. Well, the, Paul was obviously very well educated. Yes. And probably he had read Philo as a part of his education. I would imagine at least people were talking about Philo's ideas. Because he went to, according to Acts, he went to Jerusalem. He studied with Gamaliel. If this is true that he went to Jerusalem, it, the reason I'm saying if this is true is because Paul never says that. He never says in any of his letters. But in Acts, it says that he says that he studied in, with Gamaliel. And if you look at that, and we look at some of the overlap, Philo comes up and visits the temple, might have even met Gamaliel. I would imagine that he did. Gamaliel was the head of the Sanhedrin. He would have met him. Well, one was a tax collector, and so they, he would have been educated for sure. The, the fisherman less likely, the tax collector more likely. I right. mean, he had a broad spectrum there. But even of the ones that weren't educated, it would not be unlikely that they hooked together with a, a scholar who was well-educated in Greek to, to put their words down on paper of their recollection. Exactly. And and so that was really common at the time, too. Collaborator, collaboration between the first-hand witnesses and the more philosophy. Philosophically uh, 
educated writers that were assisting them in the task. A lot of the understanding, say, of First Peter are, is based in that, that they believe that there was someone writing for them. And, of course, that person doing that is going to speak the language of the day. There you go. And it, so it makes sense why it would all be there. And it was really, really common at the time for someone who had a story to share to use a writer who was better than them. But it didn't get acknowledged. Of course, it didn't say this was. <laughs> it was really, really the common. The idea was the well, usually they would, they would find a young man, and that, that would be their disciple, and they, he would be the recorder. Just like Jeremiah uses Baruch, you know. He, Baruch goes everywhere with him. And we don't have Jeremiah's writings, but we have Baruch's versions of Jeremiah. Exactly. Must have lived beyond Philo and would have been a junior contemporary of Paul and Philo. Because the things that you brought out that Philo said about the high priest, yeah. about the angels being created beings, and Hebrews is closer than anything yeah, to what Philo said. Exactly. So here we have two guys, both from Alexandria, clearly Apollos had to have been influenced by Philo. Right. It's just there's no question about it. Everything you brought out that Philo said is in the book of Hebrews, and you even quoted the book of Hebrews. So if there's ever been an argument for coming every Sunday... <laughs> I just think that, see, again, we have this connection that Paul possibly, probably had this connection also with Philo through the Jerusalem church. But, um, and then we don't know exactly what Paul was doing in some of that time that he was trying to figure out what happened when he went and lived by himself and, uh, you know, what he was reading. But, no, he never takes it on because I think they just think Philo was right. And I they do something that I think is just the best way to approach anything, which is, and I teach my students this, I said, don't, don't focus on where people go wrong. Focus on what they got right and build on that. It's so much more positive. We spend so much time saying, well, this person's wrong, and, they, and then all that text written. There's enough negativity in the world. I even can look at Doherty and go, thank you. And thank you for putting all this together. I don't think you're adding it up in a way that, that completely makes sense, but... But he's right. It's just there. Well, I think of Christ. 
Yeah, I think in many ways, and in fact, one thing I didn't mention is that uh, some of Philo's work was, went, traveled with the, New the early versions of the New Testament. He almost was a runner for a church father or part of the New Testament, even though the <laughs> he never talked about it. What's a mystery is that he never talked about Christ. He never talked about uh, any of that, even though he was a contemporary. He, didn't, he never mentions it. There are a lot of reasons. Of course, Doherty goes crazy on that. Why wouldn't he talk about him if, you know? So he, he finds evidence in that. But I see it as that just wasn't his agenda. And it probably wasn't, at that time, a big enough thing. Christianity had not emerged enough. Yeah. When did Doherty write again? Who? Doherty, when did he write? 1990. But he's basing his ideas on some books from like 1902, 1905. So it's been around. You're welcome. Where, where did you study under Lane? Lane. Western Kentucky University.